Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 453 of the podcast. It is August 10th, 2022. My guest today is Sarah Boisvert. You're going to learn more about her in a minute. She is going to be a panelist on the main stage at this year's AME, or Association for Manufacturing Excellence Annual Conference. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about that panel, give a preview, but we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting things from her career involving technologies like 3D printing. When should we use that because it makes sense as opposed to just seeming new and cool? We're going to talk about some of the new workforce requirements that um, modern companies are going to face with um, the, all of these new technologies and what she calls 21st century apprenticeships to give people the skills that don't require college degrees. So Sarah's got a great background, a really interesting background. We'll talk about Lean and how that fits in to these technologies that she's been involved with as an uh, entrepreneur and as a leader. Um, so for links and show notes and more, go to leanblog.org slash 453. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Sarah Boisvert. She is the founder of the New Collar Network and Fab Lab Hub. Her career spans advanced, um, quote unquote, smart manufacturing, and we'll learn about that a lot today. Um, she's also done a lot in uh, the realms of art and music and innovative workforce training. So Sarah's mission as part of the Fab Lab Network is to create pathways that don't always require college degrees for people to get well-paying, engaging careers, what she calls new-collar careers. So we're going to be talking about that a lot here today. Careers that utilize disruptive technologies like 3D printing, laser machining, robotics, VR, and AI or machine learning. So before I tell you a little bit more about Sarah and her background and career, joining us from Santa Fe, New Mexico, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm going to ask you real quick for those who are watching on uh, YouTube, you might notice why I'm asking, are your earrings 3D printed? My earrings most certainly are 3D printed. And uh, it's interesting because um, technology people always ask me, why do you always wear those same earrings? And they're fabulous branding. So everyone knows me by my neon green earrings. <laughs> and, and and you said, it, 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 I'm afraid it cut out, they're certainly not 3D printed or they certainly are? Oh, they certainly are. They certainly are. Okay. Just wanted to confirm that. They are a cute, cool kind of cubic, open cubic shape. So maybe we can find a way to share a picture of those uh, in the notes for those who are just listening. But um, Sarah is the author, among other things, she's the author of two books, First off, The New Collar Workforce, and the second book called People of the New Collar Workforce. So in collaboration with Santa Fe Community College, Sarah has also founded the New Collar Innovation Center at the Santa Fe Higher Learning Education Center in uh, 2021, recent project, to foster innovation and lifelong learning, new collar workforce training, and the creation of 21st century startups. So I also want to mention, as a couple of my previous guests here recently um, have been, Sarah is going to be part of the AME annual conference. She's going to be, um, it's being held in Dallas, October 17th through 20th. Um, For more information or links for how to register, look in the show notes um, for that. And so Sarah is going to be part of a main stage keynote panel 
Joining her in that panel are going to be Deandra Wardell, who is my guest here in episode 405 of the podcast, and also Amy Gowder, the president and CEO of GE Aviation Military Systems Operations. Um, I'm going to be moderating that panel, so it's going to be uh, a good time. Um, Deandra, listeners will know, has been a good friend of mine, and, and, and people may not know Amy Gowder is my wife. So I say that in the interest of full disclosure. We're still <laughs> still figuring out how much that needs to be um, disclosed. But um, so Sarah, again, thank you for being part of that group and and for joining us here today. Um, you know, I, I want to ask you about some of the topics you would want to discuss in that panel. You know, you know, the AME theme is embrace disruption. But you know, before I do that, I want to ask you a question that I ask. Most of my guests here, um, you know, lean manufacturing has been disruptive in different ways over uh, you know the past decades. Um, what was your first exposure to new ways of manufacturing, in in particular here, lean manufacturing? Um, my first exposure was at Potomac Photonics in Maryland, um, that uh, had been. A an R and D company, and the founder Paul Christensen was looking for ways to develop a miniaturized excimer laser at 193 nanometers. And I uh, joined him in the company uh, as co-founder of the commercial division uh, to commercialize uh, that laser. So I helped them go from being an R&D company to implementing um, more uh, codified manufacturing processes like lean. Um, I had studied lean, of course, uh, you know, the Deming work um, in my MBA program, which tells you I'm old. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, I find that my friends joke that uh, lean rules my life and that I use lean in my kitchen. Um, and I think that's okay. You know, I, I think that I see lean as a way to reduce stress in our lives. Well, I, I think that's a, that's an amazing summary um, because, you know, if you're choosing to do something to improve your kitchen and that reduces stress in that setting, that's great. Um, think, you know, you and I are in agreement that lean is supposed to reduce stress for the people doing work, whether that's in a, a, a factory, a hospital, it should be eliminating waste, making work easier and more fulfilling, even though um, it seems like sometimes people get focused on tools instead of that important outcome. So I was, I was wondering if you could just tell us more about like, you know, why, why that's so important to you in terms of making work less frustrating. I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of the Deming perspective that you had might've been helpful there. Yeah, it really was. And um, I think that, you know, as, as we talk about and, and was really one of the main themes the last time I spoke at uh, the AME conference, it was in Dallas. And one of the main things there was how lean is people centric. And um, I find that a lot of managers don't respect the capability of people to solve problems. And so coming from the MIT Fab Lab world, um, you know, we're a meritocracy. And um, I think one of the reasons that MIT is such a special place is that um, 
we believe that everyone can solve problems and given the tools and, and the education and the opportunity. And I really think it goes beyond, um, it goes so beyond just having your factory floor run in an efficient way um, and taking, you know, those savings down to the bottom line. I think it also goes to this real sense of belonging and being a true part of a team. And I walk into so many factories where there's, you know, all this signage about the teams and, but they treat people like, like, scum you know they teach they treat them like they're they're just cogs in a wheel and in fact when you implement lean properly um people step most people you know i think want to uh contribute and have fun and feel valued and when people feel valued it just changes the whole dynamic in the company yeah and 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 there is that distinction as you put it um lean done properly or words similar to that effect. Because I think one of the challenges is that anybody can do just about anything and, and put that lean label on what they're doing. And, and to your point, if a company has the mental model that employees are a cost and employees are a problem. I mean, like when I started showing my age, when I started at General Motors, um, that was still, that was the mental model. Employees were not viewed as a partner in a shared passion, which could have been the case, right? Building high-tech engines for Cadillacs. That's pretty cool stuff. Yep. But it was uh, unfortunately like a really, the, the culture there was really degrading to the frontline staff. And, and yeah. that was the biggest impediment to then trying to progress and, and, and be more Toyota-like as we got new leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an interesting thing because um, what always struck me when I was um, visiting factories in Japan, uh, which I did for many, many years, um, a third of my sales were in Japan at the beginning of uh, the laser company uh, commercialization. And um, in Japan, you have a small landmass with a awful lot of people. And people are far more gracious to each other. And I one time witnessed a um, an accident in a parking lot, and they both jumped out of their cars and w- ran up to each other and started bowing and apologizing. And I spoke a little bit of Japanese so I could understand, but they were apologizing to each other. And I thought, good Lord, that would never happen in the U.S. <laughs> you know, they'd be blaming each other and frustrated and 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 after and you know it was just so i think the culture um in japan was really conducive to lean and it it has taken us in manufacturing in the u.s some time to embrace that cultural difference mm-hmm. and i i would propose and i'm, I'm curious to hear your reaction to this idea the problem is not the adaptability of workers, it's a, a problem with the adaptability of managers who have been leading a certain way for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, that often seems to be the roadblock. I'm, I'm curious your perspectives on that as someone who's been in leadership roles yourself. Yeah. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And and when you coach people to um, work in a certain way, 
they, I find, just step up to the plate. And so I have a really active 3D printing uh, registered apprenticeship with the U.S. Department of Labor. And um, it, they'll invariably say to me when they start, um, you mean you're not giving me the answer? <laughs> you know, um, What's the answer to this? And I'll say, well, here's, here's how you're going to find us. And we're going to work on finding the answer together. And um, one of them, after a while, said to me, you know, at first I was really um, afraid that this was kind of like trick questions and you were using it to kind of weed me out. And yeah. and it was like, no, we, we have to work together to find the solutions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and particularly in this day and age when we have, you know, YouTube and all of those wonderful resources for finding good examples and best practices um, is a, a lot easier, you know, than it was years ago when you had to go to the library. And so, you know, I really expect our people to offer solutions and um, they have different perspectives than I do. And they're the ones in the trenches. They are the ones who are they're doing that those jobs although i've done all the jobs um at that any given moment i'm not doing all the jobs and so i think that um people are still surprised when you look to them for their opinion and i think it's because often their opinions are are pushed aside and and sometimes they're wrong. You know, sometimes their, their solution, uh, I've tried before. Uh, I actually, one of my, uh, my lab manager recently, uh, said something and I said, well, you know, I've done this, uh, on this particular problem for six years and here's the data. And, and he said, oh yeah, I didn't realize you had tried all those things. And, and I tried all the things he suggested. So then we had to really start thinking outside the box. Right then you really, but you have to work together and you have to reinforce that you're accepting uh, uh, the person, you know, that, that you, you respect their ability to, uh, to really come step up to the plate and create some good solutions. Yeah. And, and, and that, that story really illustrates the difference between just somebody else might, you know, it would, would have been proud and like, well, you're wrong. I know better. And then they're discouraged from speaking up again. <laughs> and, and it doesn't take sometimes, sometimes it doesn't take more than one interaction like that for people to say, um, I've learned that speaking up is risky and I can't be wrong. And if we want to make sure we're not wrong, the, the easiest way to do that is to not take risks and not speak up, whether that's in continuous improvement or as an entrepreneur, it's like, you've got to be willing to to take those steps and build a culture where people are willing to try things. And exactly. And, and sometimes, um, you know, ultimately I decide, right. Ultimately Mm -hmm. I, I make the final decision of whether something's going to happen or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think when you have good balance, um, not long ago, one of our registered apprentices decided to put a calendar to, to write a calendar on our whiteboard. 
And I'm not in that particular lab all the time, and I can't see that calendar. And I said to him, you know, you're welcome to keep a calendar here on the whiteboard, but you've got to duplicate it in our online calendar because I am often working at our other lab or I'm traveling or I'm in my home office and I'm not there to see who's coming in that day or that you're going to be off that day. You know? yeah, yeah. And I, I think that uh, when you communicate it and because we do a lot of peer review in our training classes, um, you know, I really have worked hard to get our people to move away from the you words, you know, you did this and you mm. should and all of that, but more more about, um, well, how does that work? Or, you know, I happen to see that this failed. Um, how can we fix this? You mm-hmm. know, what do you, why do you think that went wrong? And then I can tell them why I think it went wrong mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and see where we meet in, in the middle. Um, but I have to say that at Potomac, I mean, we very, very rarely had people leave the company and it was because they were so respected by my partner and I. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that you know the the story and what you're saying there illustrates that of, like you said, working together with people and and coaching people through whether you call it brainstorming or testing different things. Um, there's a difference between knowing the answer and figuring it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. seems really powerful. And and I really think a problem with the education system is that teachers were trained, and I have education advanced degrees. Um, teachers were trained that they had to know the answer. And, um, and so we do all project-based learning and it's, it's getting the teachers and that's not very different from the mentors in an apprenticeship program or managers in a plant. It's getting them to feel so comfortable with themselves to be able to say, Gee, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And, um, you know, we're going to have to figure it out. We're going to have to go find the answer. And maybe I know somebody who knows the answer, but why don't you start with uh, maybe a literature search? Yeah. So let's shift. And, you know, I appreciate your focus on, on workforce development and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I want to ask you first, talking about a problem that people are trying to figure out how to solve um, in, in, in all sorts of settings. Um, let's focus on manufacturing. Um, you you wrote um, when your book was released in 2018, U.S. manufacturing companies are expected to face a shortage of 2 million skilled workers by the year 2020. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll just ask, did, did that prediction come true? Was it worse than predicted? Has it been, how much worse has it been made by the pandemic? Um, it is worse. Um, I don't know exact numbers because I haven't looked at it recently but it is much worse. Um, the Manufacturing Institute and NAM um, are uh, still looking at big uh, uh, reductions in number of skilled workers. And I think that's, you know, as I talk about in the book, um, you know, that is one of the big problems is um, you know, we already had this this uh, skills gap. Where, you know, and even though I wrote it, I did all the research in 20, in the last six months of 20, 
17. So the information was pretty fresh, but it hasn't changed radically. What has changed is that the technologies that I talked about, and I was particularly interested in manufacturing, but those technologies are now ubiquitous across industries. So now you've got robots who are the janitors in Walmart stores, and now you've got self-driving you know, delivery vehicles, and you've, it's everywhere. You've got the dentists using 3D printing. And so the only difference that I'm seeing is that it's exacerbated uh, beyond manufacturing and the, um, the great resignation, you know, did make it worse um, where people didn't want to go back. I'm hearing uh, in the world that the um, uh, pending recession, if it does happen, uh, is probably going to force a lot of people to go back to working in person. And I also read something, and I can't remember where I read it in the last couple of weeks, that Gen Z actually is missing the social interactions. It's a very social group. And they're yeah. actually missing uh getting to see other people and other human beings and that um, a lot of them are uh, switching back to social, social jobs, but it is um, an ongoing problem uh, having um, uh, uh, these large numbers of, of job openings and not having uh, a good um, pool, you know, mm -hmm. of candidates. Yeah. And so for some of these new technologies involving uh, robotics and 3D printing and, and laser machining and things like that, what, what when you look at the technologies and how, how do you define the skills that are needed or what, what, how, do you, how do you figure out which skills are most in short supply for, for that new technology environment? Um, well, as, as I talk about in the book, I, uh, had been asked by a number of the fab labs in the United States to um, develop a two-year curriculum for digital fabrication. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'd worked on this for my factory, but I knew what I needed. And so I, I looked at it and I thought, well, I'm going to have to come up with a lowest common denominator. So I spoke with 200 manufacturers on what were the skills they needed for operators and technicians. I didn't see as much of a gap in um, engineers because, uh, you know, we've convinced everybody they have to go to college. So they go to college and become an engineer, which means we have no CNC machinists and we have no welders. And there's a huge gap in electricians right now. I mean, it's really serious. So I spoke to all of these companies and it turned out 95% of them were looking for people who had problem solving skills. Mm. And I'm not surprised by that because all of the new technologies um, that are coming on board, you haven't got the old guy in, in the back of the plant who's been there 30 years and can come and get, you know, the latest metal 3D printer up and running. You, mm -hmm. you really have to be able to take these machines. And I see the 3D printing industry where the laser industry was 30 years ago, where companies were just starting to understand that they needed customer service. Mm -hmm. and um, Not just technology. 
right, right. And I thought that HP entering the production 3D printing market around the time that I wrote the book um, was so fantastic because they forced people to become more professional and to up their game on the customer service side. You can't depend upon the manufacturer in a new industry. And so you actually need somebody who can uh, fix these new machines and get them up and running. But you also need people who can bring in new technologies and develop the processes that you need for your particular factory for. Um, the, The technologies are changing so quickly and so many new technologies are coming on board that to say you're going to train somebody for X may not be applicable in an, in even a year. And so um, that was really one the, the very big thing they wanted. They wanted hands-on experience. They did want um, digital skills like CAD design and metrology uh, because the tools are digital. And many of them uh, wanted 3D printing skills because subtractive and and additive are just so different. So it was, but that was across the board. I mean, 95% of Fortune 10 down to startups. Hmm. So it's interesting. It sounds like um, I I was surprised to hear that some of these new technologies, it sounds like increases demand for older trades that have been around a long time, welding and electricians, or, or how much of that is, Increased, I might have this wrong. So let me ask it as a question. How much of that is due to increased demand versus just reduced supply of, like you said, people think I have to go to college instead of learning a trade? Um, On the demand side, it is that the skills have become digital. So, um, and I I quote Thomas Friedman from the New York Times in the book because he uh, had visited a welding company, I want to say in Minnesota. You know, I haven't, I wrote the book a long time ago. So, and I think right. they were in Minnesota. And they had been a welding company and they got a really high tech contract with a, in, in the defense space. And suddenly they really needed to do welding that was far more complex, far more advanced. It was truly advanced manufacturing. And so the old programs that just trained welders were no longer relevant and they need people who can read CAD files, who can deal with the digital side of the tools, but also understand metrology and and more complex measurement systems. And so that's the um, demand side. So the demands have changed. And then on the supply side, you are exactly right. I mean, we've convinced everybody that, you know, you must go to college and um, it's just not for everyone. And um, so, but we end up with, I mean, when I went to high school, you, we had two tracks, you had the college prep track and you had the Botech track and that's disappeared. Everyone is just, you know, channeled on this college track um, that may or may not be right for the person. And there are some wonderful jobs. You know, I can't, you know, in in my book, the second book is behind me uh, and it's an augmented reality book. And I have video that pops up of people talking about these kinds of jobs and There's a guy from Potomac Photonics, John Ford in it, who uh, 
couldn't make it through community college. You know, he loved math, didn't like anything else. He was a hands-on learner, not a book learner. Took a job with our company as an entry-level operator of a laser system. And he, in the video that's in the book, he says, any job can have a bad day. But how bad can your day be if you get to play with lasers every day? (laughs) And John has gone on to become an engineer and run four laser labs. Mm. Um, And, you know, I I look at the, particularly in the maker movement and so many of the, or the kids on the robotics teams. And how fun is that? And you can make um, a decent living where you can support a family without all the college debt. And you shouldn't get me started on that topic. I well, mean, I, I won't give, I have to give you a chance to ask questions. Oh, that's right. Oh, it's good. I mean, it's, it's an important topic. It's an interesting topic. Um, I do want to go back a little bit before kind of diving back into, you know, this, this idea of um, vocational training or, or reskilling or, or, or different types of work. Um, when we talk about, you know, the, this, this skill of, um, problem solver, um, or, you know, making sure everybody has that. It's not a trade. It's not a job class. It's a skill everybody should have. Mm-hmm. What sorts of methodologies do you find most useful to teach people? I, I think of, you know, a big part of lean is at least some approaches to problem solving. Um, I'm curious if you teach people some of those methods and or other methodologies to, to, to get better at solving problems. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I think that most of the MIT graduates that I've ever met complain heavily about problem sets, but I have never met an MIT grad who could not solve a problem. And my partner had done his master's in MIT, PhD at Berkeley, and, um, you know, he could, he just could solve any problem and would go to visit a customer in a totally different field, like, you know, chemical analysis, and he would solve their problems for them. And uh, I think that the methodologies that schools um, and and project-based learning really came out of McGill in uh, in their medical school. Um, but that kind of uh, teaching method um, is, I think, is key and has to start at the lower grades. And um, so that then when you get someone, they already are are used to problem solving. They're used to um, being able to do approximations. Um, I mean, being able to do approximations uh, is is, uh, something that really everyone should be able to do in their everyday life and uh, be able to get close to an answer and then refine yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's a lot of um, uh, lean uh, uh, things that we do that are are important, but I really think it comes back to um, the school systems and that we really have to get these kids young and get them into a mindset that is so different. <clears throat> and um, and we also use peer review so that they learn to work in teams collectively and, and take everyone's good ideas. And I, it, it comes back to our education system really needing to be revamped. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and then back to what we were talking about earlier, some of the workplace culture being mm-hmm. revamped. Cause again, to that story that you told, it sounded like a, a process of kind of, you know, uh, team-based experimental experiential learning. Mm-hmm. So I think like what you were sharing and, and what they were doing, um, you know, it's not like a process of coaching them through that because one doesn't have to have a degree from MIT or a PhD from anywhere right. generally you know, to solve problems related to your day-to-day work. Right. So, um, so to that point, you know, what, what sorts of frameworks, how much of it can be taught versus just developed by having hopefully a good coach as you're trying to solve problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard someone uh, from one of the automotive companies on a panel one time say that problem solving could not be taught. And that is wrong. I mean, uh, that is just wrong. Problem solving can be taught and it can be taught um, K through 12. It can be taught in college and grad school and on the job on the factory floor. And um, it, it really is. And I, I use the Stanford D School uh, uh, design thinking model. Um, and it's, it's always so fascinating to me that even the people that work for me, when we're in a design thinking exercise, they just want to go right to their first idea. Mm-hmm. And, and on it. Yeah. yeah. And you just have to, you know, rip their little fingers off the keyboard <laughs> or off the chalk. And uh, no, we have to, you know, I want to hear every idea. Think about every possible way and think of the craziest idea. You know, think of, you know, that you're going to bring some Martians down and they're going to, you know, I want to hear every possible idea, no matter how simple and efficient or how outlandish. And I think that when you get people, particularly in teams, who start to work that way, and um, it it opens up so much possibility than when they go to that first idea, and and they're they're not really thinking outside the box, and um and it's often the the noisiest, most vocal person who you know, brings up that idea first. And, um, you know, you need to get everybody involved. And um, that that's one of the ways that I that I really try to um, develop our our work. And I'm actually going to be teaching problem solving for my city's uh, managers um, through design thinking, um, and uh, they, they they're going to be in for a surprise because <laughs> they have they you know I think they're thinking well it's going to be a lecture and they have no idea how how much fun this is going to be <laughs> and and I think that's the thing I I I see how we teach and both on the factory floor with our workers and in our classes. And it's so much fun and people mm-hmm. really enjoy it. And they, they come to work happy to be there. Yeah, and That's what we want, right? We want people yes. to have good lives. And uh, people's enjoyment in the workplace affects people's lives. Um, there are studies that point to health impacts um, that that ha- hating your job or being in a really dysfunctional 
workplace environment has all sorts of spillover effects, unfortunately, to physical health, mental health, home life. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and when I see somebody who is off kilter, you know, I give them, a, you know, maybe they don't feel well that day. I mean, not, not by the minute, but if it goes on for more than a day or so, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them about, you know, so what's going on? You know, it seems, is it, is it us? You know, is it your, is it us? Is it something in your personal life? Is it, do you need some time off? I mean, you know, tell me what's going on that you seem not yourself. Um, maybe you're in pain. Maybe, you know, you have something physical going on. Um, and how, how can we work with you to solve that problem? And because um, otherwise it just festers. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. Yeah. A little bit of caring and empathy goes a long way. Yes. Yeah, it does. And and it's good for me because I, I it's not fun for me to go into a cranky office or a cranky lab or people being, you know, destructive, you know, internal and physically destructive, but destructive to the culture that I have built. And it's not good for me. And, um, and it's not good for the person and we, we all, it has to be win-win. Sure. For sure. So Sarah, you touched earlier on, you know, the idea that a lot of, you know, people have been convinced college degree is the only way to go. seems like a lot of companies have been convinced that hiring college graduates is the only way to go. So you, you shared recently on LinkedIn about how General Motors has made a change to policy. I had seen this in the news, I think even before you shared it, looking at skills, not just degrees. So I was wondering if you could you know, kind of talk about that dynamic of, um, I think you framed it, degree creep. How, mm-hmm. how, how does that end up developing and, and what can we do about that? Yeah, um, you know, and, and, you know, we're highly educated and I love that I had the opportunity to have education and it was right for me. Um, you know, it was the right path for me and I love school and I think all the time about going back and getting a a PhD in engineering, um, you know, for fun because (laughs) I love school, but, um, what, and so not to be disparaging of colleges, but colleges hit upon this idea that um, the more people that went to college, the more money they made, right? I mean, it's a typical business decision. So colleges went from being kind of for the public good um, to being businesses. And uh, it was all about how do we, you know, make more money. Uh, and, um, and the way to do that is to convince the universe that um, everybody needs a college degree and you're going to make more money. Well, um, also, in my book, I talk about a study that was done in Baltimore um, that compared um, the salaries of people who had um, degrees at the same level, so say an AA degree, in a STEM field versus a non-STEM field. And I think the STEM field people made 23% more than the non-STEM field. So. You know, it's one thing if you if you have an inclination, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a brain surgeon, you want to, you know, you want to be a rocket scientist up the hill near me at Los Alamos. Um, clearly, you need to go to college. And if you have the inclination and the desire and, and the, the um, K 
capability, um, both in terms of the um, uh, school capability, but also, you know, the the financial wherewithal. Um, that's all great. But what colleges did is they convinced people that they all needed to go to college. So if you didn't have an inclination in a STEM field, you would end up going to, you know, a field like English. And while I, I think it's wonderful that we have English majors, and I'm really thankful that I know how to write well, um, you know, if you're expecting to get out of college and pay back all of that debt, um, it's just not going to happen. And so all degrees are not equal. Um, they're, they're just not equal. And, you know, I hate to say it, but, um, and where you went to school is not equal. So I have an undergraduate degree, um, in piano performance from a very famous conservatory. Um, and, uh, you know, I then did a master's in pedagogy, um, at the university of Rhode Island. And it was shocking to me that there were people there getting, um, piano performance degrees from this very nice little school. But, but I mean, my class in New York was not going to all get jobs or become famous concert. Mm. And if we weren't going to make it, I mean, how are these poor kids and, yeah. you know, this other, you know, low level school, I'm mm-hmm. not disparaging, but you know, it was not the same level that I was used to. So I think we've done a real disservice to people by convincing them. And so the colleges then were churning out all these people. And as the employers started to look at it, it was like, well, you know, we could have somebody with a bachelor's degree. And now if they have an AA degree, um, you know, they can actually do wiring or they can actually do welding or, you know, whatever it was. And there was a lot of assumptions there. Um, and, um, I think that it, it started to become that the HR people, it was easier for them to just say, oh, it requires an AA degree, not not just the skill of running a 3D printer or running a um, uh, welding machine. I had a, a an incident uh, here in New Mexico where uh, a 3D printing software company had uh, uh, asked me about uh, the community college developing uh, some training programs for them. And they ended up doing it, hiring the people and the people got there and couldn't do any of the tasks. Um, and he, and I had said to him at the time, the college could do this, but you know, I can just develop digital badges for you. And he called me not long ago and said, I made such a mistake. I had to invest so much into the college and you could have had the badges and the people could have, because I've sent him people who could actually perform. And um, I think GM moving to to this model was um, really important. Uh, it's more work for the HR people because now you, you know, you can't just check a box. You have to really examine it more closely. Um, this movement started with Ginny Rometty and Tim Cook when they were on the uh, workforce task force um, in the Trump uh, White House. And in 2020, uh, the Trump White House issued an executive order that uh, required that all 
government agencies, federal government agencies, had to re-examine their hiring practices to look at skills, not just degrees. And IBM has been doing this for almost decades. Um, you know, IBM has that wonderful apprenticeship program in IT. Um, Kitty Rometty is really my role model. Um, and in more recent times, it's uh, uh, Byron August, uh, August, I think is, is the pronunciation from Opportunity at Work. And are helping uh, states of Colorado and Maryland, for example, to see that we've between the colleges and the HR departments, we've created, um, you know, really something that's not tenable. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that yeah. was a long answer. Yeah. No, it's a it's a complex topic, and and to yeah. that, more uh, relatively local to you, you've been working with um, Los Alamos National Laboratories. Make, are, are you you're helping convince them or helping them make progress on looking at skills more so than just degrees? Yeah, we have. And um, we have worked with Lanel for two years uh, on this topic. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's slow changing perceptions. Um, And uh, particularly in an institution that is run all by PhDs, right? I mean, Mm, Lanel is full of rocket scientists. um, And so (laughs) their bias is for degreed uh, people. but uh, particularly when uh, the White House executive order came out, they started to open up a little bit. And uh, what I was particularly interested in is they have an entry level technician uh, job uh, through, um, and they had to also work with DOE because they were DOE labs. So they had to get DOE on board. So it's way more complicated, you know, than just the HR department saying, oh, gee, you know, we're now going to take skills. So they finally got everybody together. And what they are uh, calling it is um, an AA degree or um, equivalent experience, you know, so that does give some leeway to each department. So it could be a registered apprenticeship, it could be um, work on the job, you know, there's just a lot more options for how people can um, get into that pathway to LANL, which are very good jobs. People stay, you know, people stay, people don't leave LANL. Um, and they have wonderful benefits. And for a poor state like New Mexico, it's it's really important. And um, I'm, it was announced by their uh, head of HR, uh, Lori, now I won't think of Lori's name, Montaletto, I think is her last name, at our workforce summit in May in Santa Fe. And I was just so thrilled to see that progress at a big institution that we can point to and um, but it is more work for HR you know it is more work and the way that we teach with our digital badges all um, portfolio based so um, what allows me to do as an employer is to look at the portfolio the student has to identify a problem either at life work school sports and then solve that problem and um with uh photography or video 
and write up this portfolio. And it tells me an awful lot about a student's ability to solve problems. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot more work because I have to read through all these. I can't just say, oh, they've got a piece of paper. And Byron uh, from Opportunity at Work calls that the paper ceiling. And I think that is just such a great, great term. Sure. So maybe one other topic, Sarah, that we can talk about a little bit, um, 3D printing, you know, uh, since you're an expert in that domain, you know, how would a company decide, how would you help them decide when 3D printing isn't just like cool, but actually the preferred technology because it's more effective in in different dimensions of 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 quality or just being able to do things you couldn't do otherwise how do you help them sort that out well it's you know it's it's changing really rapidly um there are three areas where hands down um 3d printing is is the solution of choice um, the first is rapid prototyping, which has been used for a very long time. Uh, I think it was Ford who, like, God, 10, 15 years ago, bought desktop 3D printers to put onto the desks of their, um, their R&D staff, their R&D engineers. And so rapid prototyping has been um, a, a solution for a long time Uh for a lot of reasons, it's uh, cheaper and faster than trying to um, do something where you have to make a mold or even to uh, use a subtractive uh, technology. And it comes you can get a functional prototype immediately. It comes out of the printer able to uh, uh, demonstrate a function. Um, the other time that it makes sense is complex geometries. And you're seeing a lot of that in the aerospace industry. Um, Airbus has told our group at MIT that, uh, that, uh, we do a contract, uh, R and D for that. Um, they're saving 55% in, uh, uh, weight when they go to complex geometries, um, uh, things and when you're doing a complex geometry in 3D printing, you're able to design something in a way that could never be manufactured um, with subtractive or any other methodology. And um, so, when you have those complex geometries, you're really looking at um, uh, a whole different ballgame in terms of weight, in terms of number of parts. Um, there's so many factors that are that bring cost savings um, to to the whole process. Um, and the third time is when you're using mass customization, and that is uh, because you can uh, quickly produce one, um, and so you can produce a million different designs and print a million that are different. Uh, if I wanted to um, make money in the jewelry business, I would not 3D print my earrings. I would um, get a mold made and take them to China and I could make them for less than a penny a piece, probably ha- less than half a penny a piece. Um, I can make 16 of these cubes in seven hours. Mm. So yeah. that's not that's just not economically viable. Sure. Um, so, and I am always surprised when I talk to three D printing people in different fields that 
um, you know, they're, they're always trying to shoehorn the application into um, 3D printing, and it's not always the right choice. Many times it's the right choice, but uh, sometimes it's not, <clears throat> and it's just another tool on the factory floor. Mm-hmm. And it, when you and I had a chance to talk uh, previously, you told me about something happening here in Dallas. I was able to go find a, a video of uh, a 3D printed home that looked like it was actually, if I heard right, 3D printed concrete. Mm-hmm. You're kind of familiar with some of these applications? Yeah. Um, it, 3D printed houses are pretty um, um, hot topic right now. And um, I'm still not 100% convinced that they're advanced enough for the economics side of it to be viable. Um, uh, I, I heard that a company in Dallas went to 3D print a house in uh, Tucson or Tempe, I guess it was. And um, suddenly the concrete is in a totally different humidity uh, situation. And it took them three weeks to, to figure out how to fix the humidity problem. Um, so they're still, I think, working out the, the logistics of it. I um, am working with a company out of um, New York. Uh, and um, that is um, able to 3D print a 1700 square foot house in uh, 36 hours. So they have some very sophisticated processes that are able to um, increase speed. And as you know, speed, you know, time is money. So what we're trying to do in Dallas for the um, the AME conference is to uh, 3D print a house with Habitat for Humanity's Dallas chapter. And I just think it would be a great example of you know, we, our theme is disrupting, uh, embracing disruption and, and all the technologies that are bringing disruption to, to our fields, um, whether it's manufacturing or anything else. And I thought, well, you know, that would be something that would definitely disrupt uh, a company like uh, or, or an organization like Habitat. I think that um, beyond 3D printing, I think the other opportunity in in construction is in robotics. Um, And there's a lot of things that robots can do um, that, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of skyscrapers, um, where you're looking at something uh, where you're reducing safety risks for human beings. Um, I mean, my feeling is I work with the um, augmented um, worker group out of the World Economic Forum. And our feeling is that, you know, robots are there to, uh, they're cobots. They they are there to, to really enhance the capabilities of humans and free us up to do the cognitive functions that uh are so special to us. And someday the robots will be equal to us, but they're not there yet. Yeah. But I've, I've, I've heard Toyota people talk about the application of robots as with any technology, not doing it just to do it, but mm-hmm. like you said, in instances where safety for humans would be a concern, yeah. mm-hmm. let the robot help or let the robot do it. Right. Or if you really can prove quality would be better. You know, my mm-hmm. understanding is that, Certain painting or certain welding is done better by robots, and some 
of those uh, tasks are better done by humans and the humans sometimes can be more flexible. So it's interesting to yeah. figure that out. I was going to ask one other thing about the, the, the 3d printed house, you know, what they showed was, uh, you know, I think they admitted it was pretty simple. It almost looked like cinder block or poured concrete. And, and I think they made a point that you made even about earrings or other products that there are probably certain homes that could only be built with 3D printing methods, complex geometries, or something really architecturally mm -hmm. interesting, we we might see that more so than a replacement of, like you said, the the plastic molded part versus 3D printing, mm -hmm. prefabricated traditional home versus 3D printed. But mm -hmm. I guess it starts with these experiments. It does, and and I think that um, I don't know if I sent you the link to the house in in. Um, I think it was in Austin where it had curved walls and it was um, so interesting because on the inside of those curved walls, you know, then you had these really interesting rooms that were not squares. You had these rooms that had little alcoves where you could put a little table and chair and they were adorable. That was just really, really cute. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's great um, that, that you're helping people in all sorts of settings figure out not just new disruptive technologies, but in a good way, disruptive approaches to training and hiring and developing and, and leading. So um, again, our guest here today has been Sarah Boisvert. Um, again, she's going to be part of um, this panel discussion in Dallas at the AME Annual Conference, October 17th to 20th. I'm sure if you're there, you'll get a chance to um, you know, come ask Sarah your own questions about these things, either as part of the panel or just being there around um, the conference. So Sarah, thank you so much for um, sharing with us today, um, you know, a wide range of, of topics and expertise that you have to share. It's been a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. Again, for more information about the AME Annual Conference being held in October in Dallas, go to ame.org or look for links in the show notes leanblog.org slash 453. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.